Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will teach us from Genesis chapter 24 about the purpose and instructions for Eleazar to get a bride for Isaac and how not too many today finish out their marriage vows to their spouse. Now, we want to thank you for your listenership and your support of the Friendship with God radio program. And we also want to encourage you to be a one-time or monthly supporter of this unique Bible teaching radio program. And by you supporting Friendship with God, you will help to keep this Bible teaching radio program going on this station in your city. Now, you won't find any Bible teaching program on radio like Tom Cantor and Friendship with God, expository teaching out of Genesis that spans into every book of the Bible. Now, from the perspective also of a saved born born-again Jewish man teaching about the Jewishness of the Scriptures and the Jewish Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. We would like to encourage you to donate today by mail or by going online or calling us now or after the program at 800-247-3051. That's 800-247-3051. Again, 800-247-3051. You can also donate online at friendshipwithgod.com. Dot org friendship with God dot org and you can also mail in your support by writing to friendship with God PO box 711330 Santee California 92071 again that's PO box 711330 PO box 711330 Santee California that's S A N T E E Santee California 92071. So again, Friendship with God, P.O. Box 711-330, Santee, California, 92071. Now let's begin our Bible study with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God. Father, thank you so much for making it possible for us to come to you, Lord. Thank you for inviting us, as you do every lost sinner, to come to you and then saving us and recreating in us, Lord, all your work that you do to make us willing to come to you now this morning. And we gladly come and we ask, Lord, that you'd speak to each one of our hearts through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Genesis chapter 24 and verse 1, and it reads, And Abraham was old and well stricken in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said unto his eldest servant of his house, that ruled over all that he had, put, I pray thee, thy hand under my thigh, and I will make thee swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that thou shalt not take a wife unto my son of the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. But thou shalt go unto my country and to my kindred and take a wife unto my son Isaac. And the servant said unto him, Peradventure, the woman will not be willing to follow me into this land. Must I needs bring thy son again into the land from whence thou camest? And Abraham said unto him, Beware that thou bring not my son thither again. The Lord God of heaven, which took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, which spake unto me, and that swear unto me, saying, Unto thy seed will I give this land. He shall send his angel before thee, and thou shalt take a wife unto my son from thence. And if the woman will not be willing to follow thee, then thou shalt be clear from this my oath. Only bring not my son thither again. And the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swear to him concerning that matter. Okay, now, when we come to chapter 24 here, as we are, we've come to the longest chapter in the book of Genesis, which is all about a bride for Isaac. We need a bride for Isaac. 
And so really, when you look at it from that point of view, you can break down the chapter like this. The nine verses which we're going to cover this morning, which we're in. This is the purpose and the instructions for the trip to go get a bride for Isaac. The next part, the next verse is there from 10 to 21. That's the trip itself and the choice of the bride for Isaac. And then verses 22 through 33, this is the entrance into the bride's house. And then those verses 34 to 49, that section there is the persuading of the bride to come, to leave her home, to become the wife of Isaac. And then verses 50 to 54, those are the rewards that were given to the bride. And then verses 54 to 61, that's the actual trip back to Isaac. And then verses 62 to 67, that's the meeting of the bride and Isaac. So this is all going to take place for us as we're going to be studying this. And Eliezer is a key character in this chapter. He's very important here. And what we're going to see is this wonderful meeting. You can say, well, what meeting? Well, of course, we're going to talk about on the surface, it's a meeting of Eliezer with the bride, with Rebecca. But really, what we're seeing here deeper is a meeting together of the diligence and the faithfulness of Eliezer and the blessing of God, because they met together there, and that's what made this a successful trip. Now, we come here to verse 1 in chapter 12 and read, and Abraham. And chapter 23, as remember, that's the death of Sarah. So now it's really, it's and Abraham alone. In other words, Sarah is out of the picture as far as earth is concerned. She's enjoying the mansion that was prepared for her. She's with the Lord Jesus. But Abraham is left now alone on earth. And this chapter starts off with this new life for Abraham and Abraham. And it makes us think about Abraham without Sarah. And Abraham, it was a long time, you know, they were together. And and Abraham came to know God in chapter 12 while he was married to Sarah. And Sarah had been with Abraham through all the ups and downs and all their history of following the Lord Jesus, uh, Jehovah Jesus. But now Sarah's gone. She's gone, and Abraham is without Sarah, but he's not without God. And so if you were to sit down and you say, Abraham, okay, where are you? Where do you stand right now, now that Sarah's gone? He could say something like, Sarah, I finished my marriage race with Sarah. Sarah, I finished my marriage course with Sarah. And then he could say, Sarah, I finished my marriage vows with Sarah. What vows? What vows? The vow that he made on the day that he married Sarah to take Sarah to be his wife until death parted him from Sarah. The vow that he made on the day, the common vows today, to have her, to hold her, for richer, poorer, for sickness and health, and better or for worse, until death parted him from Sarah. The vow that he made on the day he married Sarah to love her and cherish her until death separated them. So if you ask Abraham in chapter 24, what can you say about your marriage to Sarah? What would you say right now? And he would say, on the day I married Sarah, I made vows. I made vows, and each of those vows ended on the day that she died in chapter 23. Death has parted me from Sarah, but I'm glad to tell you that I kept those marriage vows to Sarah until the day that I finished them. How few people can say that today? How few people can say that today? How few people finish their marriage vows that they made to their spouse? I'm glad to say that I stayed married to Cheryl. I was going to call her Sarah, but she's not Sarah. (laughs) I stayed married to Cheryl so that I can say today, I finished my marriage vows to Cheryl. This is something very important because we live in a day that Paul calls perilous times. And one of the characteristics of the perilous times 
is that men are covenant breakers. They're vow breakers. They don't even think about the vows that they make, and so they break them so easily. Then we could ask the question, what was the effect that Sarah's death had on Abraham? Well, as Abraham thought about Sarah's death, he was impressed with how quickly, how quickly she died. I mean, we don't read anything before she dies of any kind of prolonged sickness, doesn't say, you know, sick or anything like that. She just seems, and we don't know how, we don't need to know how, but we don't know how she died, but she just, well, however it died, just seems kind of quick. And so Abraham, looking at his own age, now realizes that may happen to him too. He might leave this world as quickly as Sarah did. And so this thought, as it's kind of percolating in Abraham's mind, is coming with a great warning. A great warning for Abraham. Abraham is thinking, I've got to provide for Isaac's marriage. This is the last job that the patriarchs did, was to make arrangements for their successors. And so Abraham is thinking this way. And God knew that Abraham would not leave that job undone. He knew that he was going to provide. In fact, what was interesting about what God said about Abraham way back in Genesis 18, 19, you remember when God was talking about Abraham and he said, I know him. That's what God said. I know him. It was interesting. I know him that he will command his children and his household after him and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. See, God said he knew Abraham. And what did he know about Abraham? He knew that he was going to command his house. You know, the Lord knows each one of us. Isn't that wonderful? It says, that, as he says, the Lord Jesus says in John 10, 14, he says, I am the good shepherd. And then he says, and know my sheep and am known of mine. So he says, I know my sheep, I know each one. And as I look around this, this room here, and I look at each one of you, and I think, oh yeah, it's Don. I certainly know Don. <laughs> I've known Don for a long time. But the Lord looks at Don and says, I know Don. I know everything about Don. And each one of us, he looks at us and he says, I know your weaknesses. I know where you're prone to fall. And the wonderful part about our Savior, the Lord Jesus, is that he knows us, is that he cares for us. He doesn't just know us, but he cares for us. So when he spoke to Simon and Peter, when he spoke to him in Luke 22, 31 to 32, he said, the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has desired to have you that he might sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that thy faith fail not. When thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. So what he said there is he said three things. He said, first of all, I know that Satan has got his target set on you. He's going after you. I not only know that, but because I'm for you and I desire you to succeed, I've prayed for you that your faith fail not. And you will. You will rise up in repentance. Then he said, I know you. I've provided for you. I have a job for you. And that job is when you are converted that you strengthen your brethren. You encourage them. You tell them. You fall, you repent, you get up, just like I did. So that's it. See, he knows us. But the knowledge is mutual. Because with the idea of this is that when it says that he knows them, when we talk about he knows us, that means that he knows who we really are. He knows who are pretending to be his sheep and who really are his sheep. He knows that each one's weakness, that he concerns himself. Like you said from Simon, he says, he's, I prayed for you. He concerns himself with each one of us to pray for us because he's ever living to make intercession for us, as it says in Hebrews 7.25, that he, he's ever concerning himself to make intercession for us, to save us to the uttermost. 
And when it says that he knows us, that means that he regularly visits each one of us. And he spends time with us as we spend time with him. He knows them means that he's for us. He's not against us. He's helping us. He's encouraging us. And it's interesting because that verse that we've been talking about here, it starts off by putting his knowledge of us first. It doesn't say we know him and he knows us. It says he knows us and we know him. That's exactly what Paul has in mind in Romans 5.8 when he says, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So when we didn't care about him at all, when we were all like sheep going astray, when we were turning everyone to his own way, what happened? He knew us, he cared for us, he died for us. This part about him knowing us, the order of him knowing us first before us, that's what John emphasized in 1 John 4, 19, when he said, we love him because he first loved us. First, he loves us, then we love him. First, he knows us, then we know him. See, we tend to put the emphasis the other way around. We tend to think, well, you know, since we're the center of the universe, it's obviously important what we do, you know. <laughs> and, they always say, and that's a wrong thinking. And so Paul, you can almost see Paul when he's writing the book of Galatians, and he knows how we're thinking. He starts off saying that, and then he says, no, 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 in Galatians 4, 9, when he says, but now, after you have known God, or rather, are known of God. <laughs> so they've got to correct that thinking. And what makes us unique as believers? What makes us different as saved from the lost? It's that we know his mind. We know his thought, as it says in 2 Corinthians 2.16. For who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. See, we know his thoughts. We know his mind. We know him. And that means that when he speaks to us, when we're studying the Bible, he speaks to us. We know that he's speaking to us. That's what he said would happen in John 10, 27, when he said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. See, we know him. That means that we know his voice. We can hear his voice, so to speak, and not literally, but from the Bible. We know him means that we know the power of, of his death on the cross, and the power of his resurrection for our sins. Those are not just historical facts for us. Those are declarations. We see those as declarations from God the Father, that he is the Son of God, according to Romans 1.4. And it says in Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. We know him in that we know that he is able, we're convinced and persuaded and assured that he is able to keep us as it says in 2 Timothy 1.12, for which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he's able to keep with that which I have committed unto him against that day. So in other words, we not only know of his ability and his ability to keep us, We'll return with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, in just a moment here on Friendship with God. We wanted to take a moment to remind you that Tom Cantor is the owner and operator of the Creation and Earth History Museum in Santee, California, the original Creation Museum. It's open Monday through Saturday, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. And if you're in the Southern California, we would love to have you come by and visit the Creation and Earth History Museum. And also, if you're visiting San Diego for a future vacation, Plan to see the Creation and Earth History Museum, the original Creation Museum, here in Santee, California, that's owned and operated by Tom Cantor. 
and has unique things you'll find at no other creation museum, such as the human anatomy wing, the age of the earth cave, and a life-size tabernacle. For more information, go to creationsd, for San Diego, creationsd.org, creationsd.org, or 800-247-3051. Now here's Tom Cantor, our Bible teacher. So then God said to Abraham that he knew that Abraham was going to command his household. And the great example of Abraham commanding his household, and God said that God had seen this, the chapter before in chapter 17, was this great day of circumcision. It was a pretty shocking day, but it says in, in Genesis 17, this last part here in Genesis 17, 22 through 27, it says that when God had left off talking with him, with Abraham, that God went up from Abraham. And then it says right in the next verse, in verse 23, Abraham then, it says, he took Ishmael his son, and all that were born in his house, and all that were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the selfsame day as God had said unto him. That was dramatic. And then it goes on and it says, Abraham, it was 90 years old and nine, he was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And the selfsame day, it emphasizes, Abraham was circumcised and Ishmael, his son, and all the men of his house born in the house bought with money were circumcised with him. That was quite a day. That was quite a day. But what's emphasized there? The very same day that God spoke to him, Abraham went out. And so then God was impressed. And God said, well, I know Abraham. I know he's not going to leave things undone. So when we see that, and it's emphasizing that, then he says, I know he's going to take care for having a bride for Isaac. That's the idea here. I mean, this is the Shema. The Shema, everybody starts off and says, oh, you know, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, it's a hero God. But the most important thing about the Shema is not the command to hear, it's what you're supposed to hear, which comes in the next verse, which is you, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And they said, and these words which I command thee this day, they shall be in thine heart, not just in your head. And then he said, and you shall teach them diligently unto thy children. And talk of them when thou shalt sit in thy house, and when thou walkest by thy way, when thou liest down, when thou risest up. See, that word diligently, it means that there's a sense of urgency about all this. There's a sense of urgency to teach. It's not a casual nighttime Bible story, but it's diligent instruction of the meaning and the requirements of God from the passages. As a matter of fact, one of the requirements of the bishop in 1 Timothy 3, 4 through 5, it says that he has to rule well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the house of the church of God? So now, think of the context here in Genesis 20, 18, 19, where we were just talking about this verse, I know him. God and the two angels had come to Abraham. You remember, it was the heat of the day. And then what did Abraham do? He just mobilizes everybody for this meal. You know, everybody's got to swing into action. There he is, and God's saying, no, that, I know Abraham. That's exactly what I expected from him. He just do that, you know. I mean, he goes in and he says, you know, Sarah, you know, quick, drop everything and start making this meal ready. You know, and Sarah could have said something like, look, dinner is at 6 p.m. here. <laughs> okay, so no dinner before that time, you know. That's dinner time. I'm not going to disrupt my schedule, but that wasn't Sarah. She calls him Lord. She says, okay, here we go. So Abraham, he's thinking that Isaac now, he's already 40 years old, 
and he's getting up there. I mean, compared to the age of the, I mean, there's a, you know, if you look in Scripture, there's kind of like a pattern to sort of figure out when people got married because, you know, we see in Genesis 11, 14, in this genealogies, it says, Sala lived 30 years, 30 years, and begat Eber. And then the next verse, I mean, Genesis 11, 18, it says, Peleg lived 30 years and begat Ru. And then in verse uh, 11, 22, Genesis 11, 22, Sareg lived 30 years and begat Nahor, and then Genesis eleven twenty four. Nahor lived nine and twenty years, or twenty nine years, and he begat Terah. So you get the pattern, you get the idea. I mean, the people are about twenty nine, thirty years old, they're having children. So you know that means they get married in their twenties. Okay, so they get married in their twenties, and now you know Isaac is forty, and um, it's like my son Joseph. He's almost forty. I should be concerned for this. I, I, anyway, <laughs> and so Abraham's motives is to get a good wife. For Isaac, underline good. And as a valid concern throughout Scripture, you see how important that was, that is. And all we have to look at for the grand example is our uh, great King Solomon. He was a humble person. And God says, You're like, he said, I'm like a child. I don't know how to rule. Humble, wonderful. Came to God, wonderful. Asked for wisdom, wonderful. But he had a problem. And it's very clearly described for us. In 1 Kings 11, 1 through 11, when it says, But King Solomon loved many strange women together with the daughter of Pharaoh. And then it says, These women were Moabite women, Ammonite women, Edomite women, Zidonian women, Hittite women. Yeah, you really had an interest for the exotic, you know. And then it describes in verse 2 of 1 Kings 11, Of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, You shall not go into them. Neither shall they come unto you, for surely, God says, surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. That's what's going to happen. She may look nice, smell nice, and feel nice, but she's going to do something to your heart. There's no question about it. She will turn away your heart after their gods. And then the tragic statement in this uh, 1 Kings 11, verse 2, at the end of verse 2, it says, Solomon clave unto these in love. Okay, so he clung to them in love. He was in love with all these many strange women. It was very tragic. And then it goes on, which is really hard for us to understand. It says that he had 700 wives. That's unbelievable. He had 700 wives, princesses, and then that wasn't enough for him, so he had 300 concubines as well. And it says, and his wives turned away his heart. See, that was the tragedy of Solomon. It was tragic what happened to Solomon. He was a, he was a son of David. The kingdom was his, and David had poured his heart into him, and Solomon had said, you know, my father loved me in Proverbs and taught me, you know, and all that we read about how the teaching, you know, that he was to say to wisdom, you are my sister, and to hold on to wisdom, and there's all the teaching of David that he poured into Solomon, and what happened? Women, strange women, many women, turned his heart away because he loved them. He claved to them in love. And so it says in verse 4 of 1 Kings 11, For it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after other gods, just like God said would happen. And his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after, and he names the gods, it's unbelievable, Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Zidonians, and Milcom, the abomination of Ammonites, And Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord. Went not fully after the Lord as did David his father. And it says Solomon, they built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab in the hills before Jerusalem. And for Moloch, 
the abomination of the children of Ammon, and likewise did he for all his strange wives. Why did he do that? Because they were Delilah's on him. Compelling and convicting teaching from the life of Abraham out of the book of Genesis from our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God. And as our resource, we're offering two amazing books to help grow your friendship with God for a donation of $20 or more. Now, Tom Cantor is our amazing Bible teacher here on Friendship with God. He's also a pastor, author, patent holder, inventor, advocate for patience, and the 2009 Whistleblower of the Year. But did you know, or you may not know, that Tom Cantor is also a scientist and biochemist and the CEO of Scanabodies Laboratory, Inc., but he's also the owner and operator of the Creation and Earth History Museum in San Diego, California, actually Santee, California, which is a suburb of San Diego. And because of Tom Cantor's science and creation background, we're going to offer you two wonderful books on dinosaurs in the Bible and another book on how your origins matter. Now, Dinosaurs in the Bible will help you understand where dinosaurs came from, where they went to, and how long they have lived on the earth. And dinosaurs are often portrayed as living millions of years before man arrived on the earth. But what does the Bible and science have to say about that? Is Genesis correct? If so, then dinosaurs were created on the same day as humans, and that would be thousands of years ago, not millions of years ago. And science today shows that it's thousands of years ago, not millions. The second book, Your Origins Matter, will help you to answer the question, what am I? Why am I here? What's my purpose and identity for myself? And understanding that you've been created magnificently and designed for a purpose in God's will for your life. Now, we're offering these two wonderful books for a donation of $20 or more to the Friendship with God radio program. And to receive Dinosaurs in the Bible and How Your Origins Matter, call us now at 800-247-3051. That's 800-247-3051. 800-247-3051. Call us for these two books for a donation of $20 or more, Dinosaurs in the Bible and How Your Origins Matter, or go online to our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org or for the Creation Museum, creationsd.org.